Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. Today we'll start with, as usual, a talk on the Dhamma, or a talk from a Dhamma perspective, and then we'll have Q&A. So for the first part, you're welcome to post questions, but we won't be answering them right away. You can still post them in the chat anytime. For the second part, we'll only allow questions to be posted. And then we'll actually answer them. They'll be putting in they'll be put in tiers and Chris will say something about that, what the tiers we use are. And they'll be answered in order of priority. So today I'll be talking about religion, science and culture. It seem like a bit of a world removed from actual but I think you'll find it isn't as removed as we think. It came up, I think, about questions about different types of Buddhism, and we often talk about other religions and so on. Uh, I think religion, science, and culture, this is... Um, that in university because what you find is the word religion is a troublesome word and there are religious studies professors who want to do away with the word think it's meaningless and so on anyway not really that interested in the side of things but Three words, of course, they're incredibly important words in society, but they're three words that do describe uh, Buddhist practice or any spiritual practice, any practice like Buddhism in, in its various aspects. They do a good job of categorizing the various aspects of practice, and they're fairly practical and one might say worldly, but they do help us to understand clearly and and this allows us to differentiate between different things like buddhism and and helps us to see what is like buddhism and what isn't by way of these three aspects i mean to me religion science and culture sums up pretty much every aspect of a thing like Buddhism. And I don't have a word for the thing, because if you call Buddhism a religion, uh, again, what does that word even mean? So people ask, is Buddhism a religion? And you get categorical answers. People saying Buddhism is not a religion. Buddhism is a religion. And so on. You know, people saying Buddhism is science, right? And then, of course, there are people who relegate it to the realm of culture. And culture is, of course, denigrated by scientists and religious people alike as being far less important than the other two. Which isn't quite fair either, 
it just depends how you define these three things. And you'll find that when anyone talks about one or another of these things, religion, science, or culture, they're often actually talking about more than one and usually all three. They're, these three things are conflated with each other or subsumed by each other. In other words, one of them is like religion is a subset of culture or culture is an offshoot of religion or something. Uh, people who will say that religion is is just is is less than science because religion is such and such and so and so. Scientists will say that religion is blind faith or so on. So not, there's a lot of unfair or, or pejorative or biased definitions of these three things that make it. I think kind of important to explore and, and elucidate the difference, the differences between them, and, and give some meaning that puts them on equal footing to allow them to adequately describe a thing like Buddhism. So here's my definition of the three. Uh, science relates to knowledge and religion relates to belief and culture relates to i want to say practice but i'll also say more generally physical manifestation i mean i, I think i'd simplify it by just saying practice but um practice is is, is not quite broad enough it's the physical and verbal manifestation of the thing And and that really seems to uh, encompass pretty much everything you can think about. I mean, I don't know, maybe there's other things, but it's a pretty good categorization in my mind. Uh, in the West, we might think of this as body, mind, and spirit or heart you know these are not buddhist words but it's sort of how we think of things in 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 western society body is culture science is mind or intellect you know and the heart or the spirit is religion and that's how we that's how these things resonate with us So what this lets us do then is examine things like Buddhism or the various types of Buddhism and determine the differences. Because when you call when you talk about the Buddhist religion or a religion, you, you end up with a concept. You don't actually end up with some sort of reality. Whereas if you talk about, for example, physical manifestations or practice, Let's say practice, just for simplicity. And you say culture is practice. Then you can differentiate between the ways of practice. Like the, the various forms of Buddhism, and in fact the various forms of religion, have very similar practices for the most part. Now it's true that, like in Judaism, they slaughter 
the rabbi will slaughter in some places, slaughter animals. And well, that's not a very similar practice to Buddhism. But there's so many similar ones, like charity is a, is a common one. Um, morality, there's a lot of religions that avoid things like alcohol or sexual indul overindulgence or misconduct, adultery and so on. Even things like murder, a common thing to avoid, at least in humans. And so that often becomes a point that leads to um, finding similarity or overemphasizing the similarity between religion. Uh, such, such that we don't realize the effect our practice is having on, have on us, and we aren't in control of the effect our practices have on us. Because the effect of our practices is going to be dependent not only on the actual practice, but on A, our beliefs, and be our knowledge. If, if we don't know theory behind a practice, of course, it can be uh, dangerous even. And if our practice is not based in or related to knowledge, then it's very easy for beliefs to to take control. Likewise, if we're not clear about the beliefs behind a practice, or if we have certain beliefs, they're always going to color and change our practices. The same two practices that are backed by very different beliefs can have a very different effect. Because it colors our emotion, it colors our um, interpretation. So when we talk about meditation practices and we say, oh well, you find meditation in this tradition, that tradition, most Buddhist traditions practice meditation, so they must be similar. So there, that's where I would point out that that's just practice, that's a physical manifestation where you do walking meditation or sitting meditation. Maybe even mental, maybe it's not just physical. But it's what we do, right? Mentally, you also do things. So let's say it is actual, not just physical manifestation, but practice. That's just what we might call culture. And so practice is very uh, among Buddhists, and, and even Theravada Buddhists. So on the other hand, if the beliefs are the same, like beliefs in Sri Lanka and Thailand and Bur Bur Myanmar, Cambodia, Laos, are all very similar, ostensibly. But the practices, so many different practices. And it's, it's, it's possible that people become bigoted or discriminatory against certain practices, saying, well, this way is better, or we do it this way, and that's... 
that's not right because that's not the way we do it. But in fact, the results are going to be very similar because the beliefs are very similar, right? Or they can be. But the question between science, the difference between science and religion is, I guess, more interesting as Buddhists. There's a long debate about whether Buddhism is scientific or Buddhism is religious. And so here's the distinction that makes the most sense to me is where science relates to knowledge, it doesn't have anything to do with the quality you give to that knowledge. So a, a, a material scientist might learn many things, but without any perspective of the importance of those things that they learn, it's easy to ignore or act in contra contrary to that knowledge. Like a scientist might study addiction or... Um, health, mental health, physical health, and still suffer from mental health, mental illness, or act in ways detrimental to their own health. Because they're lacking in any conviction or belief. And, and going along with belief is the sense of experiencing for oneself. It's easy to not have any, to, to not engage in activity that will provide you with belief and just deal with it on an abstract, reading textbooks, reading Buddhist books, reading studies, comparing studies, that sort of thing, as opposed to actually experiencing things for yourself, a knowledge that involves belief. And this is, I think, where Buddhism has an aspect of science and religion. It involves science because it relates to actual knowledge. Buddhism involves exploration and investigation. It involves a presence of mind that is focused and attentive. A practice of mindfulness is very epitome of the word science. It involves the root of the word science in regards to knowledge. It may not be the sort of knowledge that is accepted by a modern scientific community, but it is a kind of science by its very nature because it involves knowing things that you didn't know before, learning things that were not clear. And it involves a very high sense of, no, of, of the word knowledge, because one's faculties are alert and focused and attentive. So whatever one does experience, there is a deep sense of knowledge. Right? 
like sitting here listening to me, you, you, you have knowledge of everything that I'm saying and everything that's going on around you in your room. But without meditation, without mindfulness, there's not a deep clarity, there's not a strength. You know? So our knowledge, you might say, is weak. Because it's weak, it allows for a lot of uh, delusion, a lot of distortion based on our based on our beliefs and our views. But Buddhism is also very religious in the sense that our our investigation is meaningful for us. It's not some sort of speculative idle consideration. It's religious in the sense that it's meaningful. It does involve, to some extent, views, but it also involves the cultivation of views by its very nature. It involves the cultivation of beliefs. based on actual experience. Like if you consider where an ordinary person's beliefs come from, many of those beliefs are, are, are given by things that call themselves religion, out of blind faith or you know, faith in parents and priests and preachers and so on. But a lot of our beliefs do come directly from experience, and we can't help but gain belief based on our experience. And that can be wrong or right, depending on how we experience things. If we have a negative experience of something, we can harbor negative beliefs about it. If you had a bad experience in school, for example, you might have a negative opinion about formal education. On the other hand, you had a good experience, the opposite is the case. If you go to visit a country and you have a bad experience, you might have a very negative belief or view, let's say, view of that country, that culture. And it can be completely biased and untrue. So one great thing about meditation is its ability to provide an unbiased perspective. That's the whole point, right, of being mindful. And so the beliefs that are gained from it are unbiased. That's the idea. And yet we do develop beliefs in the same way that we would in any, based on any experience. We start to believe in things, except these beliefs are not blind. They're not unfounded. They're very well-founded, and they're founded on very good principles of objective, of objective awareness, objective observation. That's the whole point. Why we do this banal and sometimes uh, my, uh, meaningless, I guess. I mean, it just mindfulness can seem pointless. Why we do this without flavorless, I guess is what I'm aiming at. Flavorless observation. There's no, there's nothing exciting about it. It's repetitive, monotonous. Why we do that? Specifically for the only reason 
of trying to gain an objective perspective, why we walk back and forth, why we watch our stomach again and again and again, trying to adjust our perception in such a way that we are objective, that we are objective and attentive, right? Because our ordinary experience is not very attentive. We're quick to judge, quick to react. So if we look at these three words, I think we get a... If we look at them in this way, we get a clear picture of what the thing we call a religion normally really is. It involves practices, but practices that are based on um, belief. And that cultivate belief based on, on our knowledge, based on our observations. And, and back and forth, you know, our, our beliefs are going to color our knowledge, what we end up knowing, what we end up observing, and they're going to color our practice as well. Our practices will change. If we have wrong views, we might practice in a bad way. And that will get in the way of knowledge, get in the way of our observations which will in turn distort our views further. So because these three words are used, are bandied about so frequently and so indiscriminately, it's important, they're important to understand. Scientists, people who, we, who are call themselves scientists, are often very religious about it, believing that um, anything that is in their category is gospel, right? A scientific study is gospel. But anyone, who, if you know anything about science, about what is called science, there's so much religion involved, so much belief, often faith, in the sense of believing in studies, you know, and um, having so much information that you often can't make a, a perfectly accurate conclusion. You often have observ uh, observations that are inconclusive. So, I think science science requires.
Well, science requires religion in the sense of being actually useful. And while science requires scientific, uh, science requires science, I suppose. The point being that it it has to be separate from religion. And it depends on religion in the sense of it being colored by religion. And in the sense of it informing religion or it, it being useful in informing religion. So again, it's easy to call what you do science. Uh, when in fact it's not entirely based on knowledge. So when, when dealing with third-party observations, there's always going to be an element of uncertainty. And as a result, it has a hard time informing our beliefs. It has a hard time leading to belief, you know, faith, and, and it breeds skepticism and so on. There's an interconnectedness between religion and science. And, and the point really is finding the ability to separate the two. So when we practice uh, mindfulness, we approach it without, uh, without a dependency on belief or, or view. And that that's the 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 intention, the reason for practicing mindfulness. That's the the point behind it. Is that you should experience pain as just pain, seeing as just seeing. When the foot moves, you're experiencing the foot just as the foot. So the 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 point is to attempt to be very scientific. And, and rely only on direct observation, which, as another example, is something that is religiously avoided by material scientists who would say that that can't possibly be objective. One can't possibly be objective from a person. It is the antithesis of what they call the scientific method, relying on on personal uh, observation, right, maybe not the antithesis, but it, it, it's incompatible. Because science usually deals with things that we would say can't actually be known. So the problem with most of what is called science, and it's not a practical problem, but it's a theory, it's a spiritual problem is that it can't actually be known. It involves conjecture and extrapolation. But the thing about first-person experience is that it can be known. So there's a sense that it's a deeper sort of science. And this is really where, from a practical, from a meditation perspective, science, the word science has a very great importance. 
because the science that comes from meditation is on a different level, on a more absolute level than ordinary knowledge. Knowing something because you've done impersonal experiments and the experiments agree, the data agrees. I mean, the data agreeing uh, will never have the ability to create belief because it's abstract. I mean, because first of all, it's 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 um, vulnerable to fault, but also because it just can't be known. It involves abstraction, thinking about the data, analyzing the data, as opposed to actually experiencing it. So that's where the word science. That's how how it relates to to a practice like Buddhism. It involves knowledge as opposed to views and beliefs. Because it, when we talk about Buddhism, when we study Buddhism, it's quite common for people to say that Buddhists believe this or believe that. And that may be to some extent true, but it kind of misses the point of what Buddhism is. Buddhism isn't just believing things. Newcomers to Buddhism will often, or, or those who have been Buddhist their whole lives without practice, will often adopt beliefs, right? That's the religious side, and that's why the word religion gets such a bad rap, because there's this idea that belief should be something you adopt. You say, okay, I'm going to be Buddhist, and I will adopt these beliefs for whatever reason. Maybe they jive with my own idea, maybe they jive with what experiences I do have. But that's not really how the Buddha taught. It's not really what is um, held in high esteem in Buddhism. In Buddhism, the idea is to experience for yourself science, what we might call science, and have your beliefs reflect, reflect that. Also using your beliefs as a guide on how to cultivate, on how to practice, right? On the culture, the meditation culture the practice, the activities, the way you live your life, the culture you adopt, in other words, in order to develop science, in order to learn, to, to know, to gain experience. Because our experience is going to be colored by what we call culture, our activities, our actions, our way of life. So, anyway, some thoughts. It's I know it's it's not quite so clear, but it certainly is. These are three topics that are important because of how important they are to people, but also important because of how they um, illustrate various aspects of things like Buddhism. So, next up, we will be doing question and answer, and Chris, I believe, has something to say about this. Throughout the stream, throughout any stream, we have people from YouTube presenting questions for Venerable Yutadamo to answer. And you might think that they're answered in the order in which they arrive, but we actually have a tiered system to ensure that the questions that our community considers most important to answer get answered within the time that we have. So I thought I would expose to you uh, the factors that we use 
when we sort these questions before presenting them. First, we ask questions that are about the meditation practice, most particularly questions about the meditation practice that we teach and that we practice together in our community. And if you're new here, I recommend looking in the description of these talks where you can find Venerable Yutadamo's How to Meditate booklet. And if you haven't taken an at-home course, I recommend signing up for one at meditation.siramangalo.org. Next, we answer questions about Buddhist theory, in particular from the perspective of Theravada Buddhism. There are other schools of Buddhism, and questions about those schools may not be prioritized because we're not the ideal people to answer. And then finally, if all questions of this sort have been handled and there's still time, we move on to questions about everything else. So, I'm going to begin asking questions about the meditation practice now. Thanks, Chris. Let's begin. Meditation has helped to reduce anger in me, but I notice that restlessness and worry are still a big part of me. I am 22 years old, and maybe is it because of my age? How can I work on these feelings? So uh, remember that a big part of the practice is confronting as opposed to fixing or reducing. So if you notice that something is being reduced, well, that's good, but that shouldn't be encouraging or, well, it shouldn't be overly encouraging or overly discouraging if something is or isn't gone. That's not really the attitude we should take as meditators. Our attitude should, should be one of open openness and readiness for whatever comes. That's really, because that's really the best attitude to take anyway, right? You don't know what's going to come internally, externally. And more importantly, we're not trying to fix these things. I mean, our, our conscious practice is not one of fixing, it's one of learning. That the fixing happens outside of our control. It happens because our, what is broken gets fixed, and what is broken is our, our perception our views, right? So as we gain knowledge through science, we gain religion, which is belief in views, and of course accomplished through culture, which is practice. Right? Uh, so how can you work on those things? And I guess my point is I wouldn't try to work on them. Just like everything else, try to be ready for them. If they come, then that's what you will be mindful of. If they don't come, well, they don't come. Try not to dwell on whether they're getting more or less, because we're the point. The, the problem is practically we're so complicated that it's it's too hard to make any kind of judgment on that front. Like over time, you can feel encouraged that you have less anger. That's great. But what happens if you suddenly get more angry? Do you know that you're never going to get really angry again? Because you might. You're more complicated than that. It's not as simple as, oh, here, look, at I'm practicing, and every day, every day, I get less anger, less greed, less delusion. It's not really that way. We're too complicated. What we can say is that our mindfulness is a 
positive influence. We can see the purity uh, relating to how we react to things when we're mindful, or basically how we don't react to things, and how we understand things clearly. I mean, we see things without any bias or delusion at the moment that we're being mindful. So whatever comes from that, we don't have to specifically see. We can be confident that it's only going to bring good things. There should be no question. The problem is, abstractly, we, we are prone to doubt. We're prone to question and be skeptical. And so we, we often connect that skepticism uh, in the wrong place. And we don't connect it with the, the quality of our practice, right? If we connect that skeptical part of our mind to the actual experiences that we have, we can say, oh, I shouldn't be skeptical about this. We can, we can neutralize the skepticism because of our focus on the quality of our experience. We can say, ah, yes, rather than be skeptical based on the results of what I'm doing, I can be confident based on the quality of what I'm doing, you see? Focus on the quality and you'll have much better results in, in that regard. You'll never have to be skeptical or, or unsure. You can always be confident that it's good things, no matter what happens. You don't have to think, hey, the result wasn't what I thought it would be. Is this really working? You can say, wow, the, the, the nature of what I'm doing is so great. Definitely, it's, what, it's the right thing to be doing. What is your advice on mindfulness during studying? How should one go about it? So studying is not mindfulness. You can't really be mindful and study at the same time. I mean, my, my advice would be to not study long, long, uh, long sessions. To, and that's, that's even not just a Buddhist advice. There's lots of advice from, uh, from professionals who will say that the mind can't absorb the information, so it's not even beneficial. So I would you know, take frequent breaks, half an hour at a time, take a break. I mean, take after a half an hour of studying, take a break, and well, during that break, try and be as mindful as you can. Do some mindful sitting or walking, and then go back to studying. You'll find that it improves your studying a lot, and it certainly improves your mindfulness. But you have to be clear, you can't do both at the same time, because they're both mental activities. Is it proper to start moving very slightly before noting the said movement so as to make sure you're not noting too soon? Yeah, you don't start noting before the movement starts. You note as you start noting as soon as the movement begins, as soon as you notice the movement start. Can one practice Mahasi noting 24 hours? Is it healthy? It can be if you're if you're actually practicing. I mean, the the only time it wouldn't be healthy is if you're actually not mindful. So, unless you've been really intensively developing it for days, I wouldn't recommend trying to do twenty four hours. But absolutely, it's incredibly healthy, and 
not just healthy, but liberating. It's just a question of the quality of those 24 hours. So if you're actually doing it, something not something I would say, oh, hey, I haven't been practicing, but here's a good way to start. I'll just do it for 24 hours. And that's that's much quicker than trying to do 24 weeks, one hour a day, right? That's not going to work. When practicing meditation and old ingrained scriptures arise, what should one do? I don't know what that means, old ingrained scriptures. You start thinking. If it's thinking, you would not thinking. If it's hearing, you would not hearing. If it's wondering or so on, you would not wondering. How can we correctly leave noticed phenomena unnoted in the interest of not jumping around too much? but also note whatever arises. Is the balance sort of arbitrary or figured out through practice? Yeah, this form of question seems to come up a lot, and it seems to just be over-analyzing. If you're asking this sort of question, you should note the wondering or, or so on. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> I mean, it's not that hard to figure out. I guess it comes from a desire to do it perfectly, which is a problematic desire. I want to do it right, and maybe if I do it this way, it's wrong, and so on. So you want? How can you correctly? I mean, it's not about doing correctly. Correctly is noting. Now, it, it, this sort of question stems from the advice, which seems somewhat vague, to try and go back to the stomach, but. It's not vague, it's just try and go back to the stomach, try and go back to your, your main object. We can't give exact, precise advice, like after 15 notings, then go back, or that sort of thing, or after noting three distinct things, the fourth thing should be this. You know, that would be ridiculous. That would be so counterproductive. It's not like that. This is organic. When, when you note something, once you've done noting it, try and go back to the stomach. Now, now, in practical terms, that's not going to always be possible, but it's a good attitude to have. Find, trying to find an exact perfect form of practice is going to be detrimental. I mean, it comes from a, an obsessive mind, which is, I mean, it's a common mind. This isn't something unique to one or two people. It's what, what normally happens. But try and note that obsession, concern, the doubt, the confusion, the uncertainty, all of that. It's just a product of the practice. If I know that I was previously craving, for example, or disliking, or experienced anxiety, etc., etc., do I note knowing that I experienced something but didn't note it right away? That, that's a good thing to do, yeah. I would note knowing. You can also note whatever the thing was, unless it's a long time ago. Like if you if you realize that you're thinking and then the thinking stops, you can still say thinking. You're just again trying to remind yourself. The whole point of the meditation is to remind ourselves, hey, that was just that. It, it helps to encourage the mind to see things in this way, to see things just as they are. It, it inclines the mind towards objectivity, which is the whole point.
Is it a good thing to use coffee to make my meditation more productive by improving my concentration? If, say, I have just finished work and my mind is feeling lazy or tired? No, because concentration is not our focus. Focus is mindfulness, which coffee can't help you with. Coffee is a terrible thing. This morning, so we go for breakfast in the morning and I asked for a um, decaf coffee because I find coffee is actually you know, good for the body. It's kind of a good thing to have the hot liquid, but I think that's the last time because instead they gave me caffeinated coffee. <laughs> and boy, it changes your whole physical makeup. It affects the brain. It's a very strong stimulant, especially when you don't have it every day. Coffee's a pretty awful thing. And then when you don't have it, you get headaches and you feel drowsy and lazy. I was just reading an article this morning because we're talking about coffee and uh, it, it, it's something to be avoided i think caffeine now it can be useful for productivity mental productivity in terms of school or, or work even so if you use it for that reason i don't blame you and i don't want to discourage you but for meditation it's counterproductive it has no benefit in meditation mindfulness is about confronting the act the uh, present experience, not about fixing it or changing it or improving it. Anytime you get into fixing, changing or improving, you've missed the mark and you're engaged in wrong practice that is based on, on self, on control, on desire, on attachment. So that's the biggest problem with any inclination like that, more so than the actual effects of the coffee. So when you're feeling lazy and tired, the practice is to note that you're lazy or tired and learn about that. That's the whole point. If you practice noting and it gets to be boring to keep noting, should you force yourself to note or continue without noting or just one in a while? practice noting and it gets to be boring so let me ask you this let's be a little bit coy here what happened to the practice what changed about the practice that it got to be boring did it suddenly acquire some quality that was boring did it even change at all because you see the language you're using and this isn't uncommon i don't mean to pick on you but the language you're using is, is incorrect. It's the language we use about things. This is boring. It's actually not. This is annoying. Hmm? This is unpleasant, uncomfortable, infuriating. You're infuriating. Well, you're not, actually. What's, what's the truth of it? The truth is, I'm infuriated. I'm bored. I mean, not even the I'm, but there is the real truth. There is an experience of boredom that has arisen. And it actually is fairly arbitrary. One thing you'll start to learn about boredom is that it actually isn't even well-founded in any quality, right? Because the practice didn't change. And you can't say after 3.5 minutes of practice exactly then suddenly i get bored therefore i should only practice for 3.5 minutes so i never get bored it's arbitrary and the more you give in to things like boredom for example the quicker it becomes so the first time you get bored after five minutes and then you give into it and stop the next time you'll get bored guaranteed you'll get 
bored after three minutes or two minutes or one minute until eventually even just the thought of meditating is so uh, awful to you that you can't even start. So the truth of what happened is you practiced and boredom arose. Now boredom is actually an experience. And as a result, it becomes an object of our meditation. When you feel bored, you should say to yourself, bored, bored. Forcing yourself to note usually involves noting something besides what you should be noting. So instead, you should note whatever is preventing you from noting something else. That thing that's preventing you, in this case, boredom, should actually be the object, and then there's no forcing whatsoever. Noting has made me less able to sleep, but I don't feel tired. Is this normal? It's uh, pretty common, yes. It's to be expected. You need less sleep because your mind is more at peace. It's more focused. It's more efficient. Lots of good things that come from meditation. More energetic as well. It's like if you if you do physical exercises, you get you get exhausted slower, right? You can work more if you if you work out, and you find that you have greater strength in the body, and therefore you can do more physical effort, physical exertion without getting tired. Same goes with the mind. Do the workout that you gain through meditation mentally. Uh, improves your mental capacity for things like work, for, for mental work. And it decreases the need for sleep. Would chanting Itipiso 108 times a day help me in mindfulness practice as well? Can I do both kinds of meditation, i.e. mindfulness, and recollection of the Buddha? So uh, here's an example. Let's go back to what I was talking about. This is culture, right? And people would, would very much uh, identify this with culture. But when I say culture, I just mean practice. So I'm not actually talking about Thai culture or Burmese culture or Sri Lankan culture. That's sort of, that, I, that ordinary way of talking about. By culture, it just means practice. So you have two different kinds of practice. And practices in general are usually innocuous. And when you refer specifically to practices, we want to understand them in terms of their impact on us, right? Because you may be undertaking that practice based on a view, and you have to be able to separate your view, which we would call religion, from your practice, which we would call culture. Why are you chanting itipiso? And you have a good question. Is it going to help in your mindfulness practice? Well, I might ask what's wrong with your mindfulness practice, that it needs help. So then you can say, okay, my mindfulness practice has the problem that I don't really have a lot of faith. I don't really have a lot of confidence in it or in myself or that sort of thing. I feel like I'm not up to the task. And I've heard that practicing itipiso improves your confidence. It creates... I guess it's religious in that sense because it creates a sense of belief, not ideal belief because it's not based on science, you see. There's not knowledge involved, so it's blind belief. But blind belief is still belief, and if it's just going to artificially Im improve my belief in, in what I'm doing, giving me confidence artificially, 
that can be beneficial on the short term. So here's a concrete example of how this this uh, categorization of the of science, religion, and culture helps us to work out what we're actually talking about. If, on the other hand, you believe that there's some magic behind it, so that it's just magically going to give you some strength of some sort, then that's just a blind religion. That's just the belief side, and that can be somewhat problematic. You have to be clear. If you want an answer to this sort of thing, you have to understand what does it do physically or or as as a practice, what does it do to chant? And it does things physically, but it also does things mentally. And it does improve confidence. It can also improve energy. But it also has a danger, as I said, of being artificial, uh, being based on concepts, the Buddha and being a concept. And and some somehow often being somewhat uh, desire-based because you want some result and you're doing it because you want to fix your mindfulness practice as opposed to just being mindful of the things that are hard about mindfulness practice. And that can, can lead to aversion, partiality, bias, and there's dangers there as well. So generally speaking, yes, Buddha Nusati is, is a protective meditation, but simply for the reason that it tends to give you confidence. And if that's a problem you have, then it might help. Would you contrast the noting and the scanning techniques in the Burmese schools of Vipassana? Hmm. Am I gonna have, is this going to be the time where I compare these two traditions? Or am I just going to ignore this question and say, pass? I think I can say something about it. Body scanning. Um, the problem with body scanning and why we don't... No, I mean, the problem with body scanning... Why, why we don't think as highly of it is because it falls in the realm of ordinary observation. There's nothing special about the quality of your observation just because you're doing a body scan, right? Now, there is something special because they have very strong concentration, I understand, in that tradition. And because that concentration can filter out some of the wrong views, wrong perceptions, and so on. But I'm not convinced it's... Uh, perfect in doing so. The reason why we use the noting is because it is, it does uh, enforce a objectivity that you can't do with any kind of simple observation. If you're just observing things, the potential for wrong view, for distortion, for bias to arise in all sorts of subtle ways is is unimpeded and it's specifically the noting that is meant to impede that so noting is maybe a little bit imprecise as a as a, as a description of what we're doing remembering reminding those are much closer to the word sati which means to remember or you might say to remind oneself so when you note when you say to yourself for example pain pain you're straightening out your relationship with the pain in a way that simple forcing the, with concentration can't do. If you just concentrate on the pain, 
there's no sense that that is going to be a purifying experience. It can be a blocking out experience, but it's not going to straighten your perception. When you say to yourself, pain, because that's exactly what you're experiencing, it encourages the mind to create this objective, impartial, accurate picture of what it is that you're experiencing. Body scanning still falls in the category, in my mind, of ordinary. Again, I don't see anything special about it just because you're doing a body scan. Now, it could be said that you are kind of impartial because you're you're determining not to stop, right? To go and... But to me, that's not precise enough. There's not... There's, there's, it's quite categorically different from the reminding that goes on with sati. And I would say that it's not... I couldn't consider it to be sati-patana practice because there's not the clarifying of what it is that you're experiencing and the reminding that which is the definition of sati the reminding of there's not the tira sanya the strengthening of your uh, perception of the thing with the, the noting so the only way it's not the only way to bring about wisdom and understanding but it's the best way and it's the only way to be sure is the mantra practice I mean, that's why mantra meditation is so common. Noting gets such a bad rap, and it's such a shame, because mantra meditation is completely accepted as valid and powerful and probably the strongest sort of meditation there is. And in fact, there's no difference. It's just been given a different name, and it isn't ever recognized as the exact same thing as ancient, traditional mantra meditation. We just don't realize that this is the same technique applied to a different object. When you apply mantra meditation to ultimate reality, voila, you get vipassana meditation. Try and understand it that way. I think it's important. That's why I use the word mantra often. Mantra gets a bad rap because people think of it as mindless, right? But there's nothing about a mantra that says it has to be mindless, just repeating a word. Mantra meditation is powerful for a good reason. It focuses your attention. And in this case, it straightens the mind. Instead of thinking bad pain, there's no room for that. You're mindful. And this is pain, just pain. There you go. I answered it. Thank you, Bhante. We've crossed the hour. And I see no other top tier questions prepared. Okay. So I think we'll wrap Wonderful. up. Thank you all. I wish you all a good week. Thank you for your help. Ulu Chris. Sadhu. Sadhu. <laughs>